Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Nicole C. Keir. She is the author of Now I See You. It's a story about how she has been steadily losing her vision since her teenage years. And to put that into a little bit more precise detail, and Nicole, let's let's start with that story, when the moment where you learned about the condition that you had. Well, I was 19 and just finished my sophomore year at Yale. And I had just started summer break. I had an acting apprenticeship to report to in a few weeks, but I was sort of just killing time until then in the city. And I went to this appointment that I had made a few months ago at this retinal specialist's office. So I had been seeing a regular ophthalmologist since I was 13 when I failed the standard eye exam. But that was just for nearsightedness. I just wore contacts. And at my last annual visit with her, I had mentioned that I had trouble seeing in the dark. Specifically, I had gone to the beach with my boyfriend and couldn't see the stars one night. So I mentioned that just very casually in passing. And she said, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's nothing, but as long as you're here, let's just dilate and take a look. And she saw a little something, which is what she called it. She was sure it was nothing, but just to be safe, she referred me to a specialist. So I had made that appointment, you know, for the next time I was going to be back in the city after school let out. And in the midst of, you know, sort of running errands and taking care of business, I just went to this specialist office and I was totally unconcerned about it. I had no dread or anxiety or I didn't have a nagging nothing. I just was like, oh, I have to go get this stupid thing over with. Just sort of a formality. So I was really shocked when he told me that I had this degenerative retinal disease, which is called retinitis pigmentosa. And it's a genetic disease, but as far as you knew, there, like your family couldn't tell you about anybody else who had had it. Yeah, there was no no history of it in my family. I was the first. And the effect of it that he described was, I mean, your vision would continue to deteriorate over time. And how much time did he give you initially? Well, he, you know, he said he couldn't really, he couldn't really make a definite prognosis, but he estimated about 10 to 15 years. And the way it would happen, he said, was the first thing that would be affected was my nighttime and peripheral vision, which is why I had had the trouble seeing the stars. I had also lost a considerable amount of peripheral vision, but I hadn't even noticed because it's just the sort of thing that, you know, I thought everybody saw the way I did. I kind of didn't realize that everybody was seeing so much more. So that had already happened. And he said that would continue the night blindness and the loss of peripheral vision, you know, leading to tunnel vision, and then eventually it would affect my central acuity too. Now, what was your first or your immediate reaction upon receiving this diagnosis? Because as you said, you'd gone in with like no expectation of anything like this. I mean, I was really shocked and bewildered, and I was so confused. I really didn't understand what he was talking about. First of all, he he was sort of throwing these terms at me, saying I, I might become legally blind, I might become totally blind, I might retain light perception. So this was surprising to me because I kind of didn't know up until then that there were different shades of blindness. I thought it was like you're totally blind or you're totally sighted. So that was confusing. 
it, it was a confusing thing for me to wrap my mind around because it was going to be very slow. The progression would be very gradual. And so it was hard for me to know what my response was supposed to be. I kind of, I had a, a very clear understanding that this was big news. <laughs> that was very clear from his demeanor. You better sit down, <laughs> was the tone of his voice. So I knew like, oh, this is life changing. This is very bad. And he said to me, you're going to want to change the way you live your life. But I had no idea what exactly that meant, you know, how I should make adjustments or changes. So it was mostly confusing. And then I, you know, and then I got sad and, you know, I grieved, but it was hard to even feel anything because it was just so confusing and shocking. It seems like rather than start that process of accommodating your life to your new condition, your emotional response was to try and act as if it's at least certainly around other people to act as if nothing was going on. You were very concerned about keeping this under wraps. Yeah. You know, initially I told my family, I told my close friends, and then I started to see how it made people very depressed and gloomy and it was awkward. People wanted to cheer me up and give me pep talks. I felt like people would feel sorry for me. And then I also, the months passed and I saw that my vision was remaining like more or less unchanged as far as I could tell. I was losing vision, but it was so gradual that it was like imperceptible. So this made me think, I'm not going to really be affected by this for years. And so why do I even have to tell people? I mean, it's kind of irrelevant right now. So it just seemed like the easiest course of action to just omit it from the story. And then, of course, what happened was as time went on uh, and the disease progressed, it began to affect me more and more significantly. But I had already established this pattern of keeping it private. And that became a very deeply ingrained habit which just became really hard to break. And and then too, as time passed, I developed these close relationships with people and I had never told them about my vision loss or eye disease in the first place. And then years just passed and it became this totally weird secret that I had inadvertently kept. And in order to kind of tell them, I would have to also confess that I had been keeping it a secret. So the whole thing became this kind of big blob of discomfort. And I just pushed it off, figuring at some point it would be inevitable and I would know when that point was. As your then boyfriend and now your husband says in, in one scene in the memoir, it's like you preferred people to believe that you were an obtuse drunk stumbling around all over the place than, than that you couldn't see. Yeah, it became ridiculous. At first, it wasn't a difficult thing to pull off. I mean, at first, there wasn't a lie at all. At first, it was really actually irrelevant for the most part. But then it became such a big component of my life that I would have to kind of like cover for it. So I would have these cover stories and the most convenient cover story for any act of like physical mishap, particularly when you're 20, in your 20s, in the evening, is like, oh, I drank too, too many cocktails. And it seemed like, well, maybe that's true. I mean, it wasn't like some big lie, necessarily. It was like, oh, I could just be a little more drunk than I am. And you know, what's the difference? But as time went on, it, it was clear there was a difference. And my husband was totally right. I knew he was totally right, but you know, it was an easier said than done kind of thing. And for much of this time, you were pursuing a career as an actress. And I'm wondering maybe like how much of that is, I mean, it's such a competitive field to try and land the parts that 
something like yeah yeah it's almost easier to be seen as drinking too much because right. that's something that you could change theoretically you could right. turn around right? and it's just so <laughs> and it's so widespread i mean it's so common and like really pretty acceptable for the most part as opposed to something that I thought people would regard as a disability or real limitation or, you know, a handicap. And, I mean, the other thing, too, is as you see, I mean, your listeners won't see because they can't see me, but, like, you see, you're sitting across from me. I can look at you. I don't look blind in any way. And so people get very confused now even, but back then when my vision was even better, it was very confusing. I, I would, you know, if I told them I had a visual impairment, it sounds a lot worse than it was. So it did make me concerned that directors and casting people, it would make them uneasy or, you know, it's so, it's so hard to get parts that you don't want any other factor held against you, particularly when like you can absolutely cover for it and no one ever really needs to know or so you think. At what point did you realize that you couldn't keep up the illusion or the masquerade much longer? Becoming a mother really changed things for me because when I had my son, I just, my priorities shifted so radically and the only thing that felt like critically important was protecting him. So I kind of knew then, oh, I have to cope with this, not just I have to be open and tell people about it, but I have to actually cope with this thing that's happening to me. But, you know, following that revelation, there's <laughs> a bit of a lag in terms of me actually doing it. Like, you know, in the movie version of this, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to get help, and then, like, immediately do it. But in real life, it was several years. I mean, the thing that I really did that changed my direction was I contacted the commission, the New York State Commission for the Blind, and they set me up with training in various ways. And that was like this very immersive moment of confronting my visual impairment and, you know, eventual blindness. And it also, that sort of set the ball moving for me to be more open about it too. And even then though, there was like one big obstacle in the road, which was the cane. You just were totally resistant to training on on the mobility cane. Yeah, I was. I mean, it felt like a huge symbol to me. It felt like sealing the deal. Like when I picked up the cane, it was the absolute acknowledgement that this was actually happening. It was not reversible. There was no sidestepping it. I was going blind and <laughs> that was the proof. So I really did not want to get trained on that cane. And I also really felt like I didn't need it. I was sort of you know, managing well enough on my own. So I felt like I'll need it one day, but I don't need it now. But the woman who came to train me, my mobility instructor, was really adamant that I had to train on it. And it was better to do it earlier rather than later and kind of really forced me into it, which of course ended up being the best possible thing. It was like the bitter pill that I did not want to swallow. Do you use the cane at all now? Or? I don't for the most part, and the times when I would really need it would be in the evening, at, like at night when it's dark, maybe some crowded situations like Times Square, but I live in New York City, so the night, like, you know, I walk around my neighborhood and it's really well lit, so I don't feel like I need it. I probably will soon, um, so I have it, but yeah. You mentioned before that motherhood was a real sort of turning point in you recognizing how you had to deal with your condition. 
And you talk a little bit in the book as well about raising children and letting them know in ways that they can understand about what's happening to, to their mom's uh, ability to see. That was something I did <laughs> do right from the start. So I just, from from the time that my son was very young, like a toddler, I kind of told him that I had weak eyes, I couldn't see very well, especially at night. And then as he got older and, and my other kids got older, I kind of gave them more information. Now my older kids, you know, they know the whole thing. <laughs> they have, they see my book and they know the whole story of the book. And the cane, actually, I show it to my kids, and I showed it to my daughter, and she thought it was, like, really, she's like, oh, wow, you have one of those? I've seen those, yeah. And we were, it was funny, we were walking down the street a few weeks ago, and she loves to pet dogs. She was petting this guy's dog, and the guy said, oh, you know, my dog's blind. And she was like, oh, my mom's blind. <laughs> and the guy was sort of like, what are you talking about? She doesn't look blind. And then she, you know, kind of went into the whole story, well, She's not totally blind. She's just a little blind now, but, you know, she's probably going to get more blind. She has a cane. It was very matter-of-fact to her. It was very casual. There was no sense of, like, shame or anxiety about it. I hope that it stays that way, but I, I feel like just having having it always had it as a matter of course has made it something not to be feared. Now, for you, I mean, we've talked about how you kept this hidden from everybody for years and and how that became kind of a compounded situation over time and then having to come back and, and start telling people and then explaining the whole backstory i'm interested in the transition from from getting from that point to deciding it's like you know if you're going to do a memoir it's pretty much the cat's out of the bag <laughs> <laughs> i know i know it got into this funny situation because i wrote the memoir and when I was writing it, people would, you know, I would say, oh, I'm working on a book. And people would say, what's it about? And I would realize that if I told them what the book was about, like, clearly they would know my whole story. I really didn't want to tell them. So I would be super evasive and basically not reveal what the book was about and just, you know, say it was about parenting or something. Essentially lie about the book. And it got to the point where my friend, who's also a writer, was like, you are literally writing a secret book about your secret eye disease. Like, you do want people to buy the book, right? Perhaps that will help you to come to terms with this. So it's it's funny. I would have never guessed that I would be so protective of that secret, but that's kind of the crazy pathology of secrets. Like, you really, they do grow, and you just find that you're protecting them more and more, really without even meaning to. So the first few times, I, I remember I put the, the book went up on Amazon and I like linked to it on social media and all of these people that I knew the next few days just were like, wow, we thought it was fiction, but then we went back and saw it's a memoir. It's not, is that true? Are you cured? Why? Oh my God. They were like shocked. And at first it was excruciating. And then I was like, this is great. This, it was so the opposite of excruciating. It was like really liberating. And now it's amazing because everyone knows. And if they want to know any pertinent details, I can refer them to my book. <laughs> and I don't even have to, you know, worry about having that awkward conversation. So you write about uh, moments when you start telling people and their reaction is along the lines of, oh, that explains a lot. Right. And I'm wondering if now that the book is out there, you're, you're getting like, that explains a lot 
from, from more and more people. So much. It's funny. People often say to me, oh, that's why you won't respond when I wave to you. <laughs> because I guess, I presume there are people all over the place on the street and in the playground and the park, like trying to get my attention all the time. And I look like a stone cold douchebag because I'm like just ignoring them all the time. It really, that's like the number one thing people say is like, oh, all those times I thought you were rude and being aloof, you're actually just like half blind. So I feel exculpated in that way. <laughs> what shifted your interests to writing? You know, you had started out uh, as an actress and where did that transition happen for you? Well, I decided I didn't want to act anymore. And in part, that was just because my vision had gotten poor enough that it was, the whole thing was very stressful for me, the dark sets and auditions. And, but equally as much, if not more, it was just that I got really fed up with the business of it. I decided I didn't want to act. Then what I did was I got my master's in English because I had the other thing that I had, you know, my two great loves had always been literature and uh, the theater. So I got my master's and thought about maybe being a professor. But then what I really love about books is the reading of them. I didn't really want to be a critic or an educator. I really just wanted to in interact with the books. And then I meet right before I got my um, degree, I found out I was pregnant. So that really changed my direction because I didn't, I thought about going into publishing, but I didn't want to be in an office that much with my baby. So I decided to start writing freelance for magazines. And then I started a blog. And, you know, then I started to think about writing a book. Now in the blog, since I guess you weren't using the blog to tell people. No. What, what, so what was the blog about? The blog was just a parenting blog. And I still have it. It's called A Mom Amok. And it's like a very... I hope, a funny blog about parenting in New York City. Oh, so that's why it was easier for when you were telling people that it's like, oh, it's a parenting blog. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. I've been, a, I mean, primarily what I did for magazines was I was a parenting writer for the past, you know, eight, nine years. So it made sense. No one got suspicion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I did not arouse suspicion. <laughs> so now that you have the memoir out, you know, having tackled one book length project, successfully. Is it something that you want to keep pursuing? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do next. I have some ideas for another kind of nonfiction memoir, more about my family and my grandmother and my relationship with her. because She's such an exceptional and like fascinating person with such an interesting story and, you know, such interesting relationships. But I also have some ideas for fiction too. I love children's books. So that might be something I might do, you know, for older kids. Now that my son is about to be in fifth grade, like, you know, we sometimes read books together and the stuff, wrinkle in time and really good juicy stuff. So it's it's great because I get to like reappreciate all of those classics that I used to love when I was a kid. As you were writing this and looking back over the years that you've been living with your condition. Did you find yourself thinking that there was anything you would have done differently about how you've handled the situation over time? Or has it worked out in a way that you're, you're happy with where you are? I mean, it's definitely worked out in a way that I'm happy where I am. And I do get a little bit, um, you know, the time travel question makes, you know, who knows if I changed one thing, how it would impact everything else. I do wish that I had not been so completely thick-headed and stubborn about refusing to tell people. It was an enormous waste of time and energy 
I mean, I think if I hadn't wasted that time, like God knows the things I could have accomplished <laughs> if I had channeled all that time and energy into something productive, I could have like done something amazing. So I would probably have moved that up the timeline a little bit. And certainly like, you know, I, I wish I could have done it when my kids were little, just so I wouldn't have had so much stress and anxiety chasing them around. But I'm grateful for the incentive the diagnosis gave me to really seize the day and try to, I mean, it sounds so cheesebally, but like savor the moment, particularly the visual moment and sort of like appreciate it. So that's something that I feel like has really stayed with me. I mean, it's not, I'm not constantly going around savoring all the moments and <laughs> 95% of the time I'm not, but I, I do, it is something that I try to keep cognizant of. And your vision is, certainly it's worse today than it was when you were 19. But on a day-to-day -day level, how how much of it have you still retained? I'm legally blind. Okay. That's largely, the criteria for that is largely because I have so little peripheral vision. And I have these, like, really annoying cataracts that make things very blurry. That's a pain in terms of reading and detail. So it definitely, like, it impacts my daily living in five billion ways, I just tend not even to notice most of the time because I'm so accustomed to it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, my vision is still good enough that unless I told you, you would have no idea. You would just think I was really rude. <laughs> and now you're, you're telling people. So that, <laughs> yes. Well, I have been talking with Nicole C. Keir. She is the author of Now I See You. It's just out from St. Martin's Press. And you have been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to this podcast through iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed yet, it's very easy to do. You won't miss a, another episode as they come out. And when you do subscribe, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which makes it a little bit easier for other people down the line to find it as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode soon. Take care.